Hello, and welcome to New PTs on the Block. We're bridging the gap from student to clinician. I'm your co-host, Dr. Dino Tobar, and with me always are Dr. Alex Nelson and Dr. Tommaso Colo. What's going on, guys? What's up, Gino? How are you? Doing good. Tommaso and Alex, you guys, you guys have been my, two of my best friends for about seven years now, which is crazy oh, to think that we've known each other Aww. that long. And you guys know me pretty well. And there are two things that I absolutely love. And they start with S and C. What are they? Uh, uh, salami. Soprasada and cheese. Oh, did you say salami? <laughs> <laughs> you were supposed to say strength and conditioning. And then I was going to say it's Stacy and Call of Duty. Fuck, you ruined the joke. Uh. Damn it. <laughs> but I, I guess I want to start off by talking about experience I had which is going to lead me to the introduction of my special guest or our special guest but I remember a while back we were listening I was listening to Barbell Medicine episode uh, which is a podcast a lot of us listen to regularly and they were talking about powerlifting in the episode as they typically do and they said most PTs couldn't rehab a powerlifter if they had walked into their clinic and at first I got a little butt hurt and I was like no way. Like I could definitely do that. And then I stopped and reflected like over the next day. And I was like, fuck, I wouldn't be able to rehab a power lifter if they walked in. And so began my journey into the strength and conditioning realm. And our special guest today, Mike Nicholas, has been such a major influence on me and given me so much knowledge on strength and conditioning. Uh, and that's why I wanted to have him on the podcast. So welcome. Mike Nichols, thanks for being on the podcast, buddy. Oh, man, I greatly appreciate it. I'm super excited. So, Mike, uh, if you don't mind giving our listeners just a little bit of a, of a background about you. Okay, well, I'll try to keep it short. I, I can take this into a two-minute conversation or probably about a 50-minute conversation. So, um, Dude, Go as long as you want, man. <laughs> well, always been an athlete. Um, grew up as an athlete, was a five-sport athlete in high school. Got the uh, privilege of playing in college football at Robert Morris, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. You know, something that I was always interested in. My, my dad was, you know, really pushed on us. And my older brother also played sports. He was a six-year NFL vet. So someone that, you know, I obviously consider a mentor that I've always kind of looked up to. Lifting weights and, and you know, trying to get better for our sport was, you know, a, a high priority for us. You know, so my dad was a, a computer engineer. So, you know, inventing things and building things was always a huge passion of his. And, you know, we kind of both, you know, went that route both in college and ended up getting out of it. But, you know, it was always something that was a real big passion for us was, you know, if we don't know what it is, we go find out. For us back in, you know, the late 90s and early 2000s, it was, you know, getting magazines, getting muscle and fitness, getting, you know, anything that we could get our hands on. So that kind of, we always laughed at, you know, most kids when they're, you know, 14, 15, 16 are, are saving up for, you know, PlayStations or, you know, GI Joes or, or, you know, different shoes or clothes. We saved up for equipment. So we saved up for, you know, a, a tiny little home gym, but it was always tough. So, you know, I'm, I'm, especially at that time, I was very undersized. My older brother ended up being 6'4", 250. So we were lazy in the fact that we never wanted to change weights, but, you know, because he was obviously a lot stronger than I was. Um, but we always try to find ways that, you know, we could be the, do the least amount of work for the most amount of gain. So, you know, we started playing around with different gadgets, building different things and all that stuff. And that kind of just led into, 
you know, different reading sources and, you know, all that. So always kind of had a huge passion for the off season. And that kind of brought me into college where we didn't have a strength coach. We literally had one rack. We had plates up to 250. So kind of exactly like what it was back home. And we had a full team to get through. You know, our head coach at the time was, you know, was an NFL head coach back in the 80s and 70s. So he wasn't really too big on, you know, strength and conditioning. He just kind of felt like if we did a bunch of 300s, we'd be, you know, well-conditioned for the sport. So I kind of started stealing my older brother's strength and conditioning manuals and all that stuff. And, you know, I started to be the quasi-strength coach for our, our program at, as a freshman. That kind of led into a guy named Tom Mislinski, who was recently with the, uh, the Jaguars prior to this whole year before everything kind of hit the fan down there. But super, super good dude, incredibly knowledgeable, had his, you know, CFCS, his HEC, he had, you know, every letter behind his name that you could possibly think of. You know, kind of fast forward, I ended up having a, a real big ankle injury and was out for 23 months. And at the time, if you weren't a part of the team, you couldn't be in the weight room. You know, so I would go in, I'd run in, I'd go click the picture of whatever we were doing, and I'd go out to the student center and, and go do it. And, you know, I hadn't known Milo then. And finally, one day he catches me. He's like, listen, what are you doing? I was like, well, you know, I used to be on the team. I'm not anymore because I have an ankle injury. I can't do anything. And they won't let me on the field or on the, in the weight room. He's like, all right, so here's the deal. It's like five o'clock I lift every five, five o'clock, every morning, Monday through Friday, you can come. He's like, you show up late one time, you're done. So that kind of, you know, ever since then, that kind of allowed me to kind of realize that it's not just about picking up heavy things, putting them down multiple times and moving on from there. I started really kind of picking his brain, doing all that stuff, kind of figuring out, you know, what it is the, the profession and the umbrella actually can handle. And that led into a forced internship with him. I just didn't leave. I was a double major in computer software manufacturing engineering. I ended up getting out of that to, just so I could spend more time in the weight room with him. You know, fast forward even more, has a couple of concussions that was having some, you know, more neurological issues. And so the doctor just reminded, remind, uh, recommended that I just start reading as much as possible. So I was done on that. So he goes out to his car, comes back with a stack full of some of his master's books of, you know, physiology, kinesiology, all that. I was like, man, this is, this is incredible. This is exactly what I'm good at. It's, you know, it's taking the, the engineering aspect of breaking down things, rebuilding them back up, really taking a, a holistic view as, you know, of a, of a person and trying to create more of a systematic approach to developing human performance. So that kind of just started snowballing into internship after internship. Ended up, when my brother retired, he uh, got a place up in Chicago, up here, asked me to, you know, come help out because he actually got meniscus surgery and he couldn't walk at the time that he bought it. So I came out here while I was playing, ended up uh, going back home for a little bit, got hired as an assistant intern up at Robert Morris, back with a different coach, Todd Hammer. That led me into an internship position up at Northern Illinois. And then when that was done, I had the option of taking a grad assistant spot or becoming full-time in acceleration where I am now. I mean, I've been here, what, uh, 11 years since. That was like the intermediate story of a, of a, a elongated. <laughs> <laughs> no, Mike, I, I love that story because it's so cool to hear how like your dad's profession influenced you and your brother's like favorite favorite activity growing up and then how that led into who you are today and what you do for a living so awesome story man so obviously you said you, you work at acceleration oh man wait hold on dice breaker i can't forget i was it. gonna say man, <laughs> this is every oh, time no. we just get so every excited. Time. yeah <laughs> all right i was thinking about icebreakers last night obviously okay. you're in the strength and conditioning world so who in your opinion athlete whether it be like nfl olympics any other sport you could think of who is like 
just a physical specimen in your mind? Like who is someone that like you see what they do on the field or on the mat, whatever it is, sport they play and off the field. And you're just like, I don't even understand how this person could do these things. Uh, man, it's such an awesome question just because, I mean, I get the privilege, you know, and, and I'm lucky enough to have a lot of professional athletes. And I always said all the time, it's like, when we're training them, sometimes I just get to sit back and just watch amazing athletes be athletes. And it's, it's absolutely incredible. It's, you know, it's the one time I get to just be a fan of to watch just some just freakishly athletic things happen. But I'd, I'd probably say if I have to say one, it's, it's one of our girls, she, um, really cool background story, three ACLs. And again, I can, I can go into detail, but she ended up, her name's Casey Short, but just got married probably about a year and a half ago. Casey, Casey Kruger, she plays for the uh, Chicago Red Stars. Um, she was on the, the national team this year for the Olympics, but just, I mean, as an overall athlete, I, I'd probably say, I mean, the, the girl can run probably four, seven, four, eight, 40 yard dash. She can just got a 30 inch vertical. She can squat probably 350, 400 pounds. Uh, it's just everything that you throw at her. She's one of, she would be one of the most elite person in that area. It was one of the, the, the funnier stories was, you know, she, when we first got started, it was her and a bunch of football players for our pros. And so she would have to, you know, the, the football players would service for her if she needed, you know, some more, more like agility type stuff. And, you know, so we do mirror drills and, you know, just some reaction stuff. And, you know, these are, mind you, NFL professional athletes that she was not only faster than, but head and shoulders more agile and just overall higher IQ when it came to being able to perceive and act quicker than anybody else I've ever seen. So I'd probably say, you know, it, it, yeah, I started this in 2007. Casey Kruger is probably by far head and shoulders one of the most athletic people that I've ever, you know, had the privilege of working with. Also, you, you did a little work with the Red Stars. Do you know her? I was going to say she's a boss. Yeah. And I've seen, I've seen her on the pitch, and she's just unbelievable. Very athletic. It, um, insane. She's awesome to watch. Yeah. So that's cool, man. That's super cool. All right, icebreakers out of the way. Check that off the list. So obviously you're a strength and conditioning coach at Acceleration. So for the listeners, define what your role is. Because uh, I think everyone has like a different view of like what the strength and conditioning coach is. And yeah. I think it wasn't until I like started talking to you that I realized how complex your role can be when working with athletes. So how would you define what you do every day? Yeah, I think Buddy Morris who's a strength coach of Arizona Cardinals. The... He said, you know, when we kind of look at what our profession is, you know, if you can kind of just generalize it, we're, we're stress moderators. If we go with the assumption that any stress is all stress, right? You know, you break up with a girlfriend, you break up with your boyfriend, that's a stress. You don't have sleep, that's a stress. You have a good day, stress, bad day, stress. So if you kind of, you know, lifting weights, stress, sprinting, stress, everything that you do has affects the body in some way. And I, I think it's our job to stress optimally you know so if they come in high stress they come in you know high academic load they come in you know again boyfriend girlfriend issues we have to understand that and take that in consideration as far as you know what type of load or what type of stress that we give them so it allows us to go down a lot of different rabbit holes as far as what it is our our job kind of entails you know making sure that you know we're loading up optimally on days that you know they might come in high stress load but at the end of the day we have a goal which is their game that we have to prepare them for so i i like the term preparation coach i like the term stress moderator 
yeah, I, I think, yeah, obviously I, I consider myself a strength and conditioning coach, but I don't like being just thrown into that idea that, you know, my job is just in the, the weight room of, you know, banging weights or, you know, you know, doing that stuff. I'd like to think that, you know, my qualifications and, and, you know, my experience has allowed me to help moderate and, you know, facilitate what it is we do with all of you guys, you know, with the entire support staff of, you know, being, you know, the AT, the PT, the doctor, the, the, the sport coach, and not just kind of siloing these professions out where, you know, you do your job and then boom, they go to us and then, then boom, they go to the, the sport. So having this idea that, you know, we can synergistically have an approach to work the human athlete and get them prepared for, you know, the demands of whatever it is they're doing. And that's why, you know, you can broaden it to if it is a sport and you can prepare them for a sport that's you know preparing them back to daily life you can prepare them back to daily life and understanding where I fit in that entire spectrum you know and, and we always talk about you know staying in our lanes and making sure that we understand exactly what our job is and our experience and our expertise are but also knowing that we can go have these conversations and synergistically create an outcome that is beneficial for the athlete. And that, that was super cool to hear because I think, or I wish a lot of physical therapists would talk about some of the social load or like the, the outside stressors that can impact the, the physical load or the external load that they can use for a workout. And uh, hearing you, you work with big time athletes and to, to talk about them as a person and not just them as an athlete and all those personal factors that can go into your programming is cool right off the bat here. So that was awesome. Mike, you were, you were the one telling me about um, like a, a study back in the day where there was a, a you, I know you, I could already see your eyes lining up about like, the injury <laughs> rate if you're, uh, if you're like a starting college player or how does it go mm -hmm. take it? So a really cool story. And I, I encourage everybody just as a, a practitioner to go look up Brian Mann. He was a strength coach for um, Missouri um, is now a professor at uh, University of Miami down in Florida. But real cool study that they had is, you know, they were looking at injury rates and what kind of, you know, just taking this, you know, holistic view of what responses and who's getting hurt the most and, you know, what position, as we all do, you know, at, at a collegiate level. And he started kind of getting a little bit more in depth into it and started realizing that majority of injuries happened preseason, like camp. And we can go down to that rabbit hole of load management and all that stuff. But at the end of the day, people are going to get mostly hurt going into camp um you know those first couple of weeks and we're talking football you know those first couple of weeks we're just two a days one a days and again you've got all that stress going on with it um uh, but he's starting to get down a little bit deeper into you know again where everybody else is getting hurt at and in his four-year study he realized that if you were a freshman starting your first game there was and again don't quote me but there's a very high level chance of you getting hurt so that was a stress in itself. So that very first game, game one, if you're a freshman, the chances of you getting hurt that week leading up to it or that game day was fairly high. Then he started looking at it more and he said, okay, first week of finals or midterms coming in October, November type, that if you were a freshman in his four-year study, that if you're a freshman starting your first game that week of midterms, there's a 100% chance that you're getting hurt. And he starts to kind of think about it. Okay, you know, what changed physiologically or, or physical or, or even you know on a, a tactical technical aspect nothing okay what changed on the psychological side well this athlete is stresses all get out you know starting his first game you know game one but even more so 
you've got finals, you're not sleeping, you're probably not eating, you're freaking out that you, you know, miss something, you miss a dude that you've got all these parameters or all these other things that are going on outside of the technical and tactical aspect of football. Boom, 100% that it was, you were getting hurt if you started that first game. So that's where, you know, the conversation started really becoming of, you know, how we start to look at, you know, the athlete in a more holistic view and have those conversations with the entire support staff. You know, and that's where I think you're starting to look at more high performance levels. And that's starting to become a, a real big term in the, the collegiate and professional aspect of not just you guys saying, all right, this guy's qualified to start jogging. Good luck, Mike. Okay, let's bring you out. Let's, let's set it up together and let's start to really look at that. Okay, let's bring in the academic advisor. Hey, so-and-so's got tests coming up and they're kind of struggling. Maybe let's back off if he's already injured or, you know, if, if, if something's going on. And it really starts to manipulate what you actually do with him if you assume that a stress is a stress. stress. Yeah, that, that's cool to hear. It, it sound, the term that comes to mind for me then is, is auto-regulation when you bring up all those other aspects of the person. And so maybe this is a little bit too early to jump into, but can you talk about how you use auto-regulation for programming an athlete? Like if it's something you do proactively or reactively, and uh, if that's something you measure over time. So there's a, a thousand different ways that you can kind of look at that auto-regulation or, you know, the fluidity of training. You know, I know Gino and I have talked about Tim Gavin and his load management with acute and chronic ratio. So you've got that on a collegiate level that, you know, if you've got an athlete that, you know, you know is consistently, we can actually measure quantitatively how long their practice is at the intensity, you know, and, and kind of actually create this superficial number that allows us to start to see what we're actually doing with our athletes. It's been proven that it's not the most validity or, or, or realistic just because, you know, there's a lot of other stuff going on, but it at least starts a conversation of, you know, okay, hey, you know, to the sport coach of, hey, you, you just jumped your athlete 25% and, you know, your load, where, where are we headed with this? What's going on? So it starts conversation. For some of our other athletes, we'll do a wellness questionnaire. Again, not the most reliable, it, we, we roll it on a seven-day scale, so at least we're starting to see some trends. It gives us an idea of, again, opens up a conversation with an athlete, opens up a conversation with a sport coach. You know, other ways that we look at it on a programming side, you know, one of my more favorite analogies is, you know, if, and I, I'm a big cooker. I love cooking and everything. I have steak's one of my more favorite foods. You know, I order my steak medium rare. You know, if I go to Sullivan's, you know, and have a, a really, really nice steak, and I order it medium rare, and it comes out rare. It's like, uh, you know, I tell the waiter, you know, you can you just throw it back on for, you know, 35 seconds and we're done? You know, I can still eat it, you know, but if they cook that thing medium well or well done, they've got to get a whole new steak and that thing's thrown out. We could take that same analogy with, you know, the athlete. I can undercook them and always come back from it. If I assume that they can take, you know, 50 meters in a sprint um, or a total volume that day and it's way too easy for them, I can always come back that next day, that next week, that next training cycle. But if I throw you know, 3,000 meters at them the first day and they get hurt, there's no coming back from that. And, you know, not even on an acute level or a chronic level. So, you know, understanding that it's very easy to start light and understand that with an athlete that you don't really know to progressively um, intensify that, that training modality. You know, as far as things that we look at, we, we try not never to jump any more from our volume from 15%. You know, there's a real good study out there that says, you know, and again, if we're looking at total volume of sprinting, 
or even, you know, resistance training, we don't jump more than 15%. We try to stay in that 10 to 12 range. Unless I'm being pushed, I'll jump up to that 15% range. But there's a huge drop off or a huge increase in injury once you see that 15%. So if we're looking at total volume of a, a thousand meters week one, if we jump up to that 1500 meters, that's the upper echelon of an increase. If we go 1200 meters in a, from week to week, we're starting, we're going to start seeing some injuries. So having those in there, uh, there's also, you know, other things, making sure that we're approaching the training system and, and blocking it or, or, you know, what we'll use is a vertical integration. So we're, we're training multiple motor skills, but we're just emphasizing certain ones. Um, and we'll never, you know, throw intensity, you know, as one of the first motor units or motor skills that we're, we're, we're trying to, you know, accumulate. So everything will really start from extensive to intensive um, as we kind of progress, you know, when it comes to that silo or that, that whole holistic view of, of programming out for, you know, a long-term off-season. Mike, how long does it take for you to program for one athlete? It, it all depends. You know, my kind of, the, the way I kind of do it and, you know, uh, football, soccer, baseball, hockey are ones that I'm fairly versed at. So those usually take quicker. Uh, but if it's a sport, and I, I just started working with the uh, Sabres hockey program or starting in the, the summer of a sport that I haven't been very versed on. Normally, it'll take some weeks to try to learn everything about that sport, you know, get their game demands, what, you know, the, the common injuries they have, what, you know, biomechanically, what angles that they, they spend most of their time in. You know, what are KPIs that they actually, you know, especially from on ice to off ice, making sure that there's high transferability and how we're actually going to, excuse me, approach it. Um, you know, so there's a lot of research that goes into it. Trying to, you know, have, we always say have a high school level of that sport. You know, if I, I should be able to, as a strength coach, be able to coach at a high school level that sport. That's at least the knowledge that I should have into it, especially, you know, on a, on a long-term approach. So I'll, I'll go through a very nice, long study. I'll call friends. I'll, you know, I'll ask a lot of questions. I'll go visit people um, that are more experienced in that sport or have a little bit higher expertise. Then it's just kind of, you know, taking what that sport is and what we'll call is reverse engineering. it. so, you know, almost breaking it down layer by layer by layer, almost into the most basic platform or, or idea of what that sport is. And then just trying to rebuild it back up depending on where that, that goes and what rabbit holes that dives down to, you know, if I'm really trying to program out for a, a high level athlete, there's a good about a month preparation that I really try to, to do. But if it's, you know, a football player, we kind of have an idea of, of, you know, again, we try to our, our best to have more of a systematic approach with the idea of, you know, even though sport might be different across the, the boards, you know, soccer is different football. There's a lot of commonalities that we can, you know, associate that sport with getting them faster, getting them to be able to change directions and be more biomechanically efficient, being able to create more power, and then being able to start to layer more chaotic environments um, that are a little bit more relatable to their sport. So the more, the easier I know that sport, the quicker those things can start to become. I really like that you said you want to get to know the sport, at least that you're able to coach at a high school level. So a lot of my clients play paddle tennis or some type of like pickleball. Are you guys familiar with that sport? Yeah. So it's basically out in the cold, freezing with like the, the, the surface that you play on is like a cheese grater. Your foot gets stuck and it's high intensity. And I didn't understand 
the sport at all, but I knew that a bunch of my clients that I work with do play that sport. So I actually tried the sport out and it gets, it, you learn a lot from, from just playing and understanding why the most common injuries happen, right? Like torn meniscus, soft tissue injury. So I like that you brought that in to the conversation because a lot of therapists and a lot of strength coaches won't take that extra step to know what the athlete is actually undergoing when they play the sport and then how to properly prepare them. So that's pretty cool. Oh, you see, you play that sport one day, that very next day, you know exactly what the common injuries are. <laughs> yeah, man. Oh, I was, I was freaking out. I was like, my knees are just Dude, just stick to pickleball. Stick to pickleball. Like, like all my patients, they just move to Florida and play pickleball. Yep, yep. yep. Paddle tennis is, is another beast. <laughs> But but that you're right, Tommaso. I mean, that probably segues into the talk of like us as physical therapists and and how uh, we can work with strength and strength and conditioning coaches because a lot of physical therapists, well, first off, they're not playing the sport, but then they're also not in the gym uh, throwing the weights around or understanding the forces or the loads that it takes to prepare an athlete back to sport. So. So, Mike, I guess maybe the, the first question around this topic is, is how do we as physical therapists work closely with strength and conditioning uh, specialists without, without uh, overstepping our boundaries? Yeah, I, I have the best setup, and I know Gino knows, and I, my wife is a physical therapist, and she was previously a strength and conditioning coach. So, you know, her ability to be able to jump through lanes, you know, on my side and her side has been, I mean, absolutely the, the easiest for me to, you know, transition into, you know, and have that conversation. And we've done it a lot with our athletes um, that have seen you guys of being able to have that conversation of, you know, how we get the athlete to go from injury to pain-free to daily activity all the way up into true competition. And there's, you know, there's a, a lot of steps that, you know, have to be taken. You know, I think something that my wife and I really started to learn as she kind of got further away from the strength conditioning side was terminology. And I think that's something, you know, and, and when we look at the high performance model, and again, that's taking the entire support staff um, and saying, we are going to do what it takes to uh, use each person's expertise to benefit the athlete. I think something that we don't do a good enough job is, is setting terminology. What means something to me, and, and, and the story that I have is something big, you know, under the physical therapy umbrella is proprioception. You know, understanding that getting that athlete to be able to have that coordination pattern, you know, again, to be able to return to daily life. But in my world, proprioception to me is balancing on a BOSU ball, throwing a ball everywhere, and jumping on a ladder drill up to another bouncy ball and all this stuff. So we always used to have these arguments. It's like, no, I'm not, you know, I don't want to do any proprioception training because there has no carryover. And finally, after we actually sat down and we're like, no, what proprioception means to me is what coordination patterns mean to you. I'm like, oh my gosh, yeah, absolutely, go right ahead. So setting that, that foundation and having that original conversation of, hey, this is what terminology means to me, this is what terminology means to you, you know, and where do we meet in the middle? If you kind of think of just the most basic idea of, you know, of a graph of athlete gets injured, you are the, the, pri the primary caretaker. We are just somebody that's in the background, you know, but, but there becomes a spot where I become the primary and you guys just become the facilitators making sure that there's, you know, if there's any soft tissue injuries or any soft tissue things that we're going, that we're seeing, it's where, you know, you guys play, but there's that middle spot that 
that conversation really needs to happen of how we do that handoff, you know, and how we can not only start to get that athlete to feel better, but also start to prepare them for their sport. You know, I, it, it is very difficult, I think, in the private sector for both of us to be able to have those conversations because I think, you know, I know on our side, obviously, it's the sales. On your guys' sales, there's, you know, insurance, there's billing, there's all this other stuff that, you know, come into play that not only, you know, it, it grades that line of what we want to do with the athlete compared to what we have to do with the athlete, but definitely having that conversation, you know, in, in a private sector, generally the way we kind of take care of it is we allow you guys to completely take care of the, you know, the, the injured area. But we ask that question, hey, what else can we do? Can we walk? Okay, there's things that we can do to really lay a foundation to get them back. You know, taking an ACL athlete, I hate when we don't get hands on them until after they're fully cleared. And some doctors, some physical therapists will, will make that apparent that we cannot touch them until month six. Well, not only have they been detrained in every other muscle for the last six months, the reason they tore their ACL is still there. You know, they're, they're, if, if you kind of think of the most basic idea of why we get injured, it's the loads of the environment that we gave them were too high for that body to handle, right? So if we tear our ACL, that, that idea is still there once they get cleared of that six months. So having that ACL happen again, having the other ACL, having the hip, the ankle, the knee, something else can go on, but allowing that conversation to happen of, hey, we can walk, we can do a dribble series, we can, you know, we can train the other parts. You know, there are some research that say, if we have a, a elbow injury on the right elbow, neurologically, if we train the left elbow and we do some stuff on there, there's some carryover neurologically that we're still going to get that neuromuscular firing pattern. So there's some, it, it allows that detraining idea to still be able to get them back, you know, at least that start of returning to play and returning to competition. So kind of going back to the original question, how do we, how do we better coexist is we actually coexist and we sit down and we understand where our lane is and where, you know, our expertise is and we help each other. We have that conversation. Hey, what's your best idea of uh, progressing an athlete uh, on their quad? You know, you know where, where do we want to start? Where do we want to finish? Hey, my athlete's having some pains here. What can you do about it? But again, it starts with that conversation of both physical therapist, strength coach, athlete, and anybody else that's involved. Yeah, I think that is, that's an awesome point that you bring up. And I may be making a general statement, but I do feel that in general, physical therapists are afraid of letting go patients like an ACL that are a little bit fragile and getting back in that rehab to a strength and conditioning coach because they don't understand the role of a strength and conditioning coach. They don't know, they just, there's a little bit of like a trust factor that's missing there, right? So I guess, what do you recommend like a strength and conditioning coach do to build that rapport with a physical therapist? Or what should a physical therapist be looking for in a strength and conditioning coach that they can trust and kind of help with that transition? Because you guys are the ones that are better at return to sport than physical therapists are. I, I was going to say, I, and that's where it's really hard with my profession. Kind of look at my profession and, and, and you guys are, you know, you've got an undergrad, you've got, you know, two years, you've got more years, you've got, you've got this very well developed clinical setting of what it is you have the capability of doing. My profession, we've, we've got a certification. You can argue that it's not the greatest, 
you know, it, it allows for, you know, there's good and bad to it. it allows us to kind of deviate off the norm and really kind of push limits. But anybody can literally go open up a center and say, I'm a strength and conditioning coach, former athlete. I'm a strength and conditioning coach. I'm just going to do what I did when I was. There. So it, it definitely sucks for the, the physical therapist to vet that strength and conditioning coach because and that, that trust is really difficult because there's so many of us that are very underqualified. And I, I'm sure we can say that against all professions, but at the very minimum, you guys have a very extensive background of knowing what you do. Our background is not the same, which again, it's good and bad in its own venue. You know, I, I have the ability to play with different modalities, you know, when it comes to different strengthening or different, you know, reduction, um, you know, modalities that, you know, you guys don't have the ability to have, but, you know, I, I definitely encourage any physical therapist with an athlete to say, Hey, what are your plans once you are cleared from here? What are you going to do? And I'd say nine times out of 10, they're just going, well, I'm just going to go back to my sport. But then again, we go back to that. Okay. Has that athlete been out for eight weeks? That's eight weeks of detraining. That's if it's longer, there's also that, you know, idea of the reg original reason they got hurt. So getting them right back in the sport, all those same qualities that they had pre-injury are still going to exist. So, you know, having that conversation with the athlete and having that communication of saying, Hey, maybe I can help facilitate you into somebody else to get you ready for uh, the, the preparation sport, but not being afraid. I, 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 it, it's tough for me when we get an athlete and I'll give them my cell phone number. I'm, I'll say, Hey, please hand this over to your physical therapist. I'd love to talk to her and start that integration process wherever she sees us fit. Because at the end of the day, if the athlete is still having pain, you are the primary, I am the secondary. So anything you say goes. And I think too many strength coaches think, you know, oh, I know what I'm supposed to do. I read this in a book once. Oh, that's completely false. So understanding our lanes. And I think that's something that we're still working on on both sides of the, the aisle of got these very, very high level strength coaches. And yeah, I, I think on both sides, we can, we can call BS very quickly on both the strength and conditioning and a physical therapist that a physical therapist that wants to, that thinks that they, know how to get an athlete back to return to play or vice versa, an athlete that are a strength coach that thinks they can already recover them and, you know, rehab them back from whatever injury that they have. So, you know, having that conversation of saying, this is, this is where we're at. These are the aisles or these are the lanes that we're set in. And I love when a physical therapist tells me what I can do. I don't like physical therapists that can tell me what I can't do. You know, you can't do this. And that's, you know, sales 101 says anytime you tell somebody they can't do something, you got to give them two reasons, two things that they can do. You know, so don't tell me I can't sprint an athlete, but can I walk an athlete? Cool, I can do some things. You know, can I jog an athlete? Awesome, I can do some things. Giving us a very close-ended idea of exercises that we can do, um, I think is the biggest benefit. And as you feel more comfortable with that strength coach, having a more communicative process of okay, you know, I understand now they've got to go into you. And this is my side, you know, Jess will always do, my wife will always say, you do what you need to do. I'll clean it all up. You know, if they're having some soft tissue injuries, if they're having some, you know, things going else, cool, send them on in. Um, you know, and, and she does an amazing job of saying, hey, I'm going to take care of the physio side uh, and be a little bit more hands-on. You take care of the strengthening side and train as you see fit. Mike. 
there's a I'm literally typing things down because I want to comment on like a hundred things you said because the, the conversation <laughs> for like the last 15 minutes has been so awesome I think the first thing I gotta say is I, I can't leave her out Jess your wife you know I mentioned how big of a mentor you've been to me but your wife has also been just as much of a mentor to me and for those of you who don't know she's my clinic manager so I'm not forced to say that like will I end so up fired <laughs> yeah I'm not forced to but I have to and that, me either my job yeah. <laughs> no, but she, she truthfully has been. But you kind of talked about that relationship between PTs and strength and conditioning coaches. And when I came to the guys with this idea, because I've been talking to them about you being on the podcast for, I mean, o- over a year now. And they're like, you know, what is your intent for the podcast? What do you want it to be about? And part of it was to highlight the complexity of what your role is with all of your clients, because like we alluded to early on like a lot of people don't have that understanding but part of it too is in our profession everyone is consistently making sure that we have good referral sources and making sure that we improve our connections with physicians for multidisciplinary care but no one's ever talking about our connections with strength and conditioning coaches right because that just kind of falls to the side and pts can do the strength and conditioning part of things and it's kind of like you said we're we had uh, a lot of our curriculum around strength and conditioning, but also we really don't understand a lot of the concepts and how to get someone back on the field or, or the mat, whatever it is. And even as someone who talked to you, I've reflected on how I'm loading patients. I don't do it well enough. And our across the board, our profession does not load our patients well enough. There's a lot of people who are going to be butthurt and they're like, oh, well, I do. Well, okay, maybe you're one out of hundreds of thousands that, that do it well. And, that, and I think that's part of where you come in. You also have a lot of other roles that you're doing. It's not just loading. People already talked about that. But the ACL thing was, it was a perfect, perfect example of, especially with those patients who their insurances don't allow us to see them for six months straight or nine months straight. I think that's perfect of, Get a relationship with a strength and conditioning coach you know as well, or, or you know who is good in the profession and what they do, and pass it over to them. Because like you said, there's good and bad in every profession. And for as many good PTs out there, there's also just as many with that doctorate title who are giving uh, e-stim and ultrasound and slapping a hot pack on their patients <laughs> and saying, all right, go home, you're all good. Absolutely. So I just thought that, that was really cool what you touched on, and I just wanted to comment on that. Well, I, th- I think it's, and if you kind of look at our background, both of us, you know, we all kind of start out as so someone exercise physiology and, and, and our curriculum of that is that of generally the NFCA, you're right. We, we, we have these qualifications to be a, you know, get our CSCS coming out of college. But if you kind of look at the curriculum, it's more in a clinical setting of, you know, how to move a 40, 56 year old patient. We might take one class of, you know, sports, you know, physiology or, you know, or, you know, load management or, or what have you, but the general curriculum right now is that then you go into physical therapy and you kind of, you know, and again, if I, I'm overgeneralizing this, but at the end of the day, the physical therapy is not made to at the most general level, your, your actual certification is not made to prepare an athlete. Your job essentially is to get them back to daily activity. You know, so when we talk about load management and how to you know do resistance training, you know, I, it's under my understanding that you guys are very well qualified to get these athletes to everyday life, walking upstairs, you know, going to the bathroom, getting food, 
you know, that's exactly what it needs to happen. You know, Jeff says, you know, all the time is my job is to get them pain free. Your job is to prepare them. If I can get them to be pain free and movement, I've done my job. The end, move on. Insurance companies look at that way. You know, everybody looks at that way, but you know, just like my profession that I've understand, you know, a linear periodization of saying, I'm going to go from 10 reps to eight reps to six reps, to four reps. And then I'm going to, you know, progressively intense them, you know, with their, their sprinting. There's so much more, you know, continuing education to have, you know, it took me and I'm, you know, 38 right now. And I still feel like I know nothing about my profession. You know, every time I think that I'm up there, I'm like, Oh, I think I got this down. I'll have a situation or experience like, well, I don't know what I'm doing anymore. And I think having that idea of, you know, having that continued education of something like this, you know, having resources like you guys. And, you know, I know, Gino, you send me stuff all the time of seeing yourself as being more than just this person that returns them back to daily activity. But I also starts that conversation of saying, hey, when we are looking at you becoming an athlete, these are the stages that you probably want to start looking at. And you don't want to, you know, if, if you sprinting straight ahead from as an ACL athlete, you still have a limp to it, right? If we're just doing a straight linear sprint, chances are you're not going to want to progress to a more, you know, chaotic environment of guarding somebody. Because if straight ahead looks like crap, you guarding someone is going to look like even more crap. So having that conversation with the athlete, but also having a general idea of how to return to play, how to return to activity with athletes and not daily, you know, your, your, your daily uh, clients that are just looking to say, Hey, I just want to walk upstairs again. If I can do that, then I'm happy. I'm not looking to go play, you know, pickleball or paddle ball. You know, I'm looking to, you know, actually return to a very high level sport. That's when I think, you know, that conversation with a strength coach and, you know, I, I obviously have my own opinions on, you know, where I would love to see the, profession go on both you know the physical therapy side and the strength and conditioning side i'd love a physical therapy therapist at every one of my you know strength and conditioning courses or classes or you know sessions or on staff and i'd love for a strength and conditioning coach to be on your guys's staff and i think when we really want to take care of people and we want to take care of athletes that's what we have to do yeah, do you know, you, you mentioned that physiotherapists underload by using those modalities, but I think even with the exercises, we underload. So I kind of have like a, a combination of maybe a real life example that just happened to me in the clinic. And then maybe we can use it as like a little bit of a case study of how Mike, you and I could work with this patient. Cause I have this college soccer player. Well, he's out of college now, but in college, he had like five to six hamstring strains pretty consistently. And he said when he was working with his physical therapist that the most important exercises were to do were single leg bridges and monster walks. Then he, you know, he'd feel fine with those exercises. And then he'd jog on the pitch and feel fine. Oh, okay, now it's time to sprint and, and get back. <laughs> and so you mentioned our jobs. I know this was a little uh, generalized, but talking about getting the patients pain free. So with someone that has a hamstring strain, for example, high level soccer player, once we load them or once we get them pain free with ADLs or general activity, at what point do you think you and I could work together? Because once you start loading them heavy enough, they're going to start to have some symptoms, but we're always going to want to be pushing their, their capacity a little bit. So like, let's say back squats or RDLs or whatever we're doing. So is there a way that we can combine 
you know, our conversations or in our care so that you can, you can take that person back to sport, even if they do have some symptoms with, with their exercises? Yeah, absolutely. I think and hamstrings are, are, are interesting because I do think traditionally that's what we kind of look at. You know, can they handle these weight room loads? Can they handle low intense running? But if you kind of look at the, the idea of a hamstring pull or tear, 80% of all hamstrings come from high velocity movements, right? So you're looking to up to get high velocity, you're looking at 20 to 40 meters, right? So if we're looking at that on more of a force output or, you know, how much load that athlete can handle, you're looking at two to three times their body weight, you know, so at point of impact, that athlete is taking on that hamstring, you know, two to three times their body weight. So it's like, okay, going from this very static idea of a, a hamstring, you know, contractile idea of we're contracting, we're releasing the muscle. We're going through this jog that we could probably say is primarily a quad based movement to right into sprinting, which is going to be a very high level impact hamstring, you know, we've got to look at it on a multifactorial issue of a, why did they tear their hamstring in the first place? Was it because did we throw too much load at them? Did we sprint, 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 sprint them every single day? Well, their body can't take that. Did we throw too much volume? You know, could, could their body only handle 200 meters and we gave them 300 meters? Is there a biomechanical issue? Are they, are they striking too far in front of the, uh, the foot? Are they too backsided? So, taking care of those type of issues right off the bat and saying, okay, where is it at? Where did it actually stem from? Or is it, again, we go back to that stress. Was that, was that athlete just high level stress? Did they break up with their girlfriend at that time? Um, so fi figuring out that, that very identifiable idea of why it happened. I, I feel like I have to know that. Just gets mad at me all the time because I have to know. And I'm always going to take blame. If I have an athlete that gets hurt, I will take blame for it. And I'll figure out exactly why it happened. She's walked me off the, back off the ledge a million times, but I had to find out because again, if, if I don't want them to do it again, you know, I'm not so hard on myself that, you know, not anymore that, you know, it'll end my career, but I've got to find out why. Then you start to take those steps. Okay. The, the idea, if we put ourselves in situations, you would come to me and say, Hey, Mike, he can walk. Okay, cool. Let's start with a very basic clearance level of how to sprint. Altus was a, a very reliable sprint company down, I believe, in Texas or Arizona. They've got a bunch of places everywhere. Has, does some awesome research on sprint mile mechanics and even just integration of movements. Um, something that our athletes will do day one that I get them to, that, that you give me clearance to walk them is our dribble series, which when we talk sprint mechanics, we look at how high their heel is compared to the ground. Um, you know, in your first three steps, that heel is very low to the ground as it, you know, as we sprint, we gain momentum, it gets higher and higher. But if I can walk them, you've given me something to do that is going to be beneficial for that athlete that were, if it was a biomechanical issue, I've reintegrated better form and a better gait for that athlete. And then we start to progressively load them, meaning we can still get top end mechanics at a jogging pace. So you can, you know, we can easily increase and decrease the intensity based off of how fast their, their velocity is. So, you know, an idea for us is, you know, an athlete coming off of a hamstring pull, um, we'll get them in a dribble series. For us, we'll do a lot of isometric work with them just because that point of impact, that's where the isometric. So we want to strengthen that joint, that ligament and that muscle at that exact angle but we'll slowly start to get them in that pastoral alignment at top end mechanics while we're starting to intensify their beginning mechanics. So 
generally that the hamstring isn't as primary in the first five meters of a sprint. So, okay, if we can get them to sprint, cool, that's awesome. Now we can get them five meters. We can start to, to build that chronic workload of movement while we are working on the back end of what their posture alignment looks like and their, their sprint mechanics. So, you know, understanding that you can easily take a movement from a low velocity to a high velocity, you know, we use wicket so I can actually constrain what their sprint form looks like and I can get them back into their hip if they're reasoning for injuring it. And the first place was they're getting too far in front of the hip or they're getting too far behind their hip. I can minimize and constrain that situation for them where it forces them to have this higher idea of risk or reward that risk is very low, reward is going to be very high for us. And then as they start to feel comfortable, as you start to feel comfortable, we reevaluate, we have that conversation. Hey, can we start to intensify the movement? For us, we'll use med balls. So we'll actually sprint them or get them in postural alignment with med balls. Cool, we check that off the box. Can they do that? All right, cool. Can they hit their top end mechanics at 50% for 60 meters? Cool. Okay, now we can slowly start progressing that. And again, when we kind of look at that, that is a more elongated idea of how we train a healthy athlete. We're just taking our time with that athlete, making sure that we're checking the right things off the box together. I feel dizzy. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I hope listeners are understanding the complexity of this and why I wanted to have Mike on the podcast, because uh, like a, a lot of what you've been alluding to, even with like the relationship is like, just like leaving your ego at the door. Like I, I realized that when I started talking to you, Mike, actually, to be honest, I, I went down like a, a rabbit hole of like, I'm not good enough. Cause I was like, this guy is so smart and so good at what he does. And I have this like stupid doctorate degrees that's supposed to mean something. And he has the strength and conditioning, which he know, like, you know, it's just a certificate. And he's like, so much smarter than me and just like he understands uh strength conditioning so much better than me like what am i what is my profession how am i supposed to go back to work and help these patients but kind of like you were saying like i would happily defer to you with like every single one of my patients uh if i could when it comes to everything that you're you're touching on so going back to like alex's question of like what is that approach i think number one is just like leaving your ego at the door and like understanding that both you both of you are on the same team both trying to get the patient better and get them back to the activity that they love most and just trying to collaborate and figure out what's the best approach to that yeah i knew as soon as he dropped like tim gabbett and the cute chronic workload ratio but then also said that it was nuanced i was like oh this guy knows his shit (laughs) he knows his (laughs) stuff you know at the end of the day you this is so multifactorial, right? All four of us, we were in the weight room or, or had the same injury. The pathology would be different. Everything would be different of how we, you know, we can find these commonalities of how we regain our, our strength and, and pain-free. But I mean, this is, the human body is crazy. And so not being afraid to ask those questions. And, and Gina goes back to, to you know, your, your conversation, I mean, it's a daily question in my brain of, am I anywhere close to knowing what I want to know? But then you start to look at, we still have no idea what it is. I mean, you still look at the, the sliding filament theory. We're still in the theory state. I mean, if you kind of put that into perspective, people that make millions, millions, millions more dollars than all of us combined have still said that the way the muscle contracts is still in a theory state. 
that's to me when you can throw away your ego and you can fully be completely fine saying, I don't know what the heck I'm doing, but I'm going to know, I'm going to continue to get better and I'm going to continue to do better than the day I did before because of the experience and the resources that I have. So glad you brought that up. I was literally driving the other day and I thought, I remember when you first told me that and I was like, I hope he says that on the podcast. That blew <laughs> my mind the first time you told me that. That's kind of like those, uh, those TikToks, do you know, that you send me about like how big the universe actually is. And it just keeps like saying all these interesting facts. Like if you made a TikTok on like the sliding filament theory, is still, <laughs> you know, always, always uh, so much out there and so much more to learn. Yeah. So, Mike, I uh, want to give you an opportunity to just tell listeners first about any like projects that you're working on or, you know, anything that you think is, is a valuable resource for us or people who want to get into the strength conditioning world uh, to look into. So I think with, with, you know, when we get interns and we have the, the, the privilege of getting a multi, multitude of different interns that want to go into strength and conditioning, physical therapy, chiropractor, doctor, all that. The, the biggest thing I would encourage everybody to do is start to look into, you can easily search it, but a high performance model uh, and even getting into, you know, some of the people to look for. I know, Gino, I've recommended the Strength Coach Network for you with, with Kira Wenham Flat. Nick DeMarco speaks on it, who's over at Elon. So there's some really amazing practitioners that are having that conversation that we want to have, you know, and just like that we had today of, where is our role in that communication and that synergistic systematic approach to help each other out and how we can use our expertise to benefit the athlete, but also bridge that gap between all of us. So really kind of the best advice I can get is, you know, search out, you know, what that high performance model is. And and two of those guys are are speaking to it very, very in depth. Nick DeMarco does an absolute beautiful job of, laying it out very simplistically, but allows you to go down a lot of different rabbit holes of how you want to approach what it is you want to do from the future on. And I'm actually going to come in with another question that I wanted to make sure we touched on because I know a lot of listeners and PTs that are either coming into the profession or currently in the profession always ask about, do you think getting your CSCS is worth it or necessary? And if not is there any other uh, certification that you would recommend or company that does it what i would recommend so again we'll go back to your your traditional background in academia nine times out of ten nine times out of ten your curriculum coming out of college is going to be that of what the nsca has set forth for you so you've got the cscs and cscca but most of the time we all believe have the the general strength and conditioning book or the essentials of strength and conditioning i think that's usually a book that at some point we all get in our curriculum i would definitely encourage you to get it right off the bat just because it's almost kind of like the sat for high school kids what you've learned in the last four years and it is a simple test to take and again you can have that conversation of our qualifications compared to even like you know, Australia or or some of the other countries are so minimal for our profession that it's laughable. But I do think that it at least opens the conversation of what it is sport can look like and how to progress. You know, I know the 2019-2018 one now has Brian Mann's uh, velocity-based training and Mladen Janovich, I always mess up his name, but 
he's also has a chapter in the book of, I believe, agile periodization. So that kind of goes back to our original conversation of uh, trying to make sure that plan A, if plan A doesn't work, making sure plan B is as close to plan A. So they are trying to take some steps into it, but it also gets you well-rounded. I do think that, you know, when you're looking at getting into physical therapy school, if you go from traditional exercise physiology into that, um, it can kind of set you apart. If you are looking at going to the collegiate side, it's very important to be able to have that terminology question and, and that communication. Um, so being able to dive into our side to have those conversations, I believe is, is going to be very beneficial. Is it mandatory? It's nothing that you can't take a couple months to and read about what we do or go visit one of us. Generally, most practitioners in the strength and conditioning world are always open for, you know, internships, always open to, you know, have a cup of coffee, have, you know, do whatever they need to do to have, you know, some good conversations. Yeah, I know. I've, I've, Mike has let me come by him to see what he does. And that was an awesome experience. So I highly encourage anyone who is interested in diving into this realm to make a connection with the strength and conditioning coach. That's how it starts. And maybe it's just a shadow day and then you could build from there. But Mike, where can anyone reach you, uh, whether it be just for questions or if we have an athlete listening who maybe wants to get trained by you or if someone wants to send their athletes to tell us about where you work and where you're located at? Absolutely. So email address, and I may take a while, but eventually I'll get back to you, is mike at accelerationpro.com. That's A-C-C-E-L-E-R-A-T-I-O-N-P-R-O.com. Social media is Nicholas11 on Instagram. You'll get a lot of rants and pictures of my baby, uh, as well as Twitter is, I believe, Coach Nicholas11. That's N-I-K-L-O-S. That one, you just usually get a lot of rants, but always willing to, to share my experiences um, to help any way I see fit and, and to do whatever I need to do to, to make sure that not only our profession grows, but you know the, the synergistic idea of our balance continues to go where we want it to go. Highly recommend following him on social media or on Instagram. You talked about your bigger older brother, but don't let Mike size fool you. This guy has some insane videos of <laughs> like squatting stupid weight and like jumping out of like a four foot pool onto the, the ledge. It's ridiculous. And then also he posts pictures of, in my opinion, the, the cutest baby Ray, um, which are always worth it after his rants. So definitely give Absolutely. him a follow on, on Instagram. Uh, Mike, thank you so much uh, for being on the podcast, man. This was awesome. Uh, I've been waiting to do this for a year. I'm glad we finally got to do it. My mind is always blown when I talk to you, and it was blown today. So thank you so much for dropping that knowledge on us. Absolutely privileged to be here. Thank you so much for, uh, for having me. Awesome. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate it, man. Thanks, Mike. Absolutely. Alex run the Zoom, but he's the least tech-savvy person of this group. <laughs> <laughs> kind of ironic. And that was recorded, so now I'll always have there we go. To, to flash back on and remind you of Gino. So.